welcome to episode 37 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's number one open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman, and we are recording at a special time on Tuesday at 1 p.m. my time, which is shortly after dinner for most of Europe, allowing for more of our listeners in those time zones to join us. It has been a while since we welcomed our European listeners. Turmoil in the UK with three different prime ministers, the death of Queen Elizabeth, and the start of the World Cup. So I'm looking forward to some very interesting discussion. First up, from Al Janoub Stadium, watching his home country of Australia take on the French national football team, is our official Camerosity Podcast World Cup correspondent, Theo Panagopoulos. Can you hear us, Theo? How are things looking for your Australian team? Sorry, Mike, the, the crowd noise is too high. I, I can't, I can barely hear you. The excitement here is absolutely amazing. They've just started the match and, uh, and France has already got first corner. So it's, uh, it's all happening over here. My only question for you is, do you have a beer? Oh, of course. Come on, football without a beer. It's just, it's just a bit sneaky. Okay, make sure it's not alcoholic. <laughs> Back here in the U.S., where excitement is a little more tempered, is our resident rocket man, Mr. Anthony Rue. Who are you rooting for in the World Cup, and do you actually watch soccer? I mean, football. I'm I'm rooting for Wales. Uh, we'll see how they do. And as far as the rockets go, I finally was able to photograph the launch of the Artemis launch. Although at three o'clock in the morning or two two o'clock in the morning, it was a bit of a challenge, and I'm still waiting to develop some of the film. Uh, we'll see if I got anything at all. But it was uh, it was a thrill to be there, even if I don't get any shots. Finally, fresh from a visit to the eye doctor is Paul Reibel. Are you going to need new glasses anytime soon? I sure hope not. I just barely got these broken in. All right, we got a couple people in the waiting room, so let's open up the doors and see who we got. All right, we've welcomed in some of our listeners. I see a couple returning faces and at least one new face I've never seen before. Two weeks in a row, Wayne Shapers. How you doing, Wayne? Hey, good. How is everyone here? Welcome back. All right, it's not two in the morning for you this time, is it? No, it's an acceptable <laughs> hour now. All right. Uh, Alan Duncan, welcome, Alan. See you again, Mike. It's good to be back. Alan's a fellow blogger like Theo and I, so it'll be interesting to hear uh, what kind of crappy cameras Alan's been looked at lately. I see John Michael Mendeza. How you doing, John Michael? I'm doing pretty well. How are you guys? Great. Where are you calling from again? I'm in Germany. Germany. Okay, awesome. Yeah, you were on the last episode we did European time zones, so welcome back. Yeah, I thought about getting up at like two o'clock in the morning a couple of times, but I never managed. Well, Wayne's <laughs> Wayne's done it a couple of times, so he's uh, Belgium is definitely representing better than your country is. So. Uh... <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, and I see Frederico. Um, I'm gonna butcher your name. I'm really sorry, Frederico Quaglino. Hi, I, hi everyone. I'm Hello. Frederico Quaglino. Well, um, first time calling, so yeah, pretty pretty nervous. <laughs> That's okay. Calling from Italy. From Italy, awesome. So we got a yeah. widespread here today. Um, we got the UK, <laughs> Belgium, Germany. Austro- I mean, Qatar and uh, Italy. So um, welcome to the so show. Now, I have to ask now, I have to ask, Federico, what's the feeling in Italy with the World Cup going on at the moment that Italy have missed out? Don't, don't, don't do this to me. <laughs> come on, come on. And then we have France playing now. So they've been our historical rivals. So uh, I'm, I'm actually it's watching hard. the game it's right hard. now. They're playing my team. Oh, yeah, it's true. It's true. They are. Could be worse. You could be Argentinian. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It could be. Yeah, I saw the game. It was pretty hard. By default, I, I'll be a fan of Australia for now, since we have at least two people that want to see France lose. So go Australia. <laughs> so have you uh, listened to the show in the past? 
Uh, yeah, I've been listening since uh, Coffee and uh, Cocaine and Waffles. Oh, wow. Okay, so you're an so, old school right from the very beginning. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, cool. Welcome to the show. I'm glad we were able to get you on. We're going to have Steve Dowling should be here soon. He told me he's got to wrap up dinner time. Um, so we'll get him on a little before. But before we do that, does anybody have anything they want to start us off with? Well, I had, I had a question. I don't know if it's one we want to start off with. But Let's go. Not? Let's start with yeah. the question. So I've, I like shooting medium format with flash quite a bit. And I was thinking the other day, I'm, I'm looking for a good uh, 35 millimeter camera to use flash with all the ones that I have are old and they've got like a 30th of a second sync speed or something like that. So I'm looking for, looking for a 35 millimeter camera with a, with a better sync speed. Okay. What, what 35 millimeter lenses do you have now? I've got some FD lenses. I've got some M42 lenses. I've got one contact Yashica lens okay. and a couple of, uh, of, uh, LTM lenses. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to go a little awkward here. Nikon autofocus. So a cheap camera like an 8008 or an 8008S and an in, and an SB24 flash. Okay. Okay. That combination is absolutely magic for a flash. The the, the camera is is uh, the camera was one. It was actually Nikon's first of the really good autofocus bodies, and it was sturdy enough that we sold a lot of them to to photojournalists and travel uh, shooters and even wedding guys. And the cool thing about it is when you add it with the SB24 is you can pick up rear curtain sync. Oh, nice. Yeah. So you can drag your shutter speed and, uh, and get the proper exposure. Mm -hmm. uh, the cool thing is that if you're doing any kind of fill flash, the shutter will hang to give you the proper ambient light exposure. And at the same time, the flash will give you the proper exposure for the flash. But it, it's a great combination. And I don't know how much they are in, in uh, Germany, but, in the U.S., you can pick up a great N thousand eight thousand eight S body for like fifty bucks. What's what's cool. the F number model? F eight hundred one. I think it's eight hundred one. Yep, F eight hundred one. Um, but it, that's just a really nice camera for uh, for uh, use with a flash. The, the only downside to it is that it it does take the Nikon mount lenses, whether you're in the AI mount or the AF mount. Um, so you're you're into a different style of lenses. I was going to go with Paul on this one because the Nikon lighting system is is quite well known. They, they, they invested a lot of money into that um, all the way through the, the 801. Um, uh, I used to use it on the F5. And the F5, you know, you'd have every single control in the world as well. So it really depends on, you know, as, as Paul says, which which lenses you wanted to go with, um, AF, et cetera. And, uh, and, but that that is one model I'd recommend. Sorry, I cut you off there, Paul. So I didn't know. I was going to say anything past the 801, the the F90, the F5, F any of those are, are great with uh, for the flash sync. I, I probably would stay away from the cheaper ones like the N50 and the the uh, N maybe the N70, but um, the 8008 is probably the best value you're going to find. I mean, it's just a nice camera. It uses double okay. A batteries, which is also a cool thing. The one that the one that I ended up grabbing yesterday was a Canon 300, an EOS uh -huh. 300, which is just a cheap one. But it, I, you know, I was looking through my cameras, and it had the it had the fastest sync speed. I think it's a 90th of a second. And you know, all my other ones are old, you know, 60s, 70s cameras, so they were much slower. Yeah, well, the Nikon's will mm -hmm. sometimes some of them are 250. You know, I, sorry to interrupt, guys. Sorry, to just kick the ball. We have to know that. <laughs> <laughs> 
or, or we all stand up and, and yell, So happy because France beat us four years ago. So <laughs> yes, they did. Yeah. So yes. <laughs> So um, we talked last uh, last episode was our Minolta episode. And one thing that uh, we spent a little bit of time on was the Minolta 9 series, the 9XI and the Maxim 9. And I seem to remember if you're looking for the fastest possible flash sync, um, that one does one three hundredth of a second. So that's pretty, pretty fast. You'll get from a vertically traveling focal plane shutter. But um, if you really like fast flash speeds, you know, to stop motion, you can't go wrong with any of the leaf shutter cameras, you know, because they'll be able to X sync at... Um, at all speeds. If I can interrupt, it looks like Stephen Dowling has cleared the Brexit queue at Dover, and uh, they've allowed him into the uh, under the under the A1. And he's too uh, soon, Ray. Too soon. <laughs> all right, Wasn't welcome, Stephen. To you, Theo. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, Stephen. You're, you're from the UK, but you sure don't talk like a UK person. What what's what's going on? Uh, I'm no, I'm I, I live in the UK. I'm from New Zealand. Okay, New Zealand. He's a Kiwi. Yeah. <laughs> How long have you been in the UK? Uh, 28 years. Awesome. Thereabouts. Yeah, a long time. Cool. Yeah, I, um, I'm really happy you're on the show. Um, most anybody probably listening to the show probably knows you already. Uh, you own and operate Cosmophoto.com and uh, Cosmophoto Film. Uh, the website used to be Zorky Photo when you first got started. You still work for and write for the BBC. So um, you have a crap load of, of experience writing, you know, both blog entries and basically anything. Uh, Stephen and I have been uh, Facebook friends for quite a number of years. He's offered quite a bit of guidance for me on my site. Um, Theo, Alan and I and Stephen are in a private chat where we kind of talk about uh, the, the, the perils and tribulations of blogging from Stephen's insistence that my 12,000 word posts are too long, but also, you know, some technical help too. So it's super awesome to have you on the show. Really happy to get a chance to talk to you in person. But uh, right before you joined, um, we were talking about recommendations for 35 millimeter flash photography. So anyway, just wanted to throw that out there. I mean, I, I try not to shoot flash. But I think the last flash unit I used was a um, Speedlight 300 for a Canon T90, which must be about 15 years ago. Uh, apart from that, I, I try and push film rather than use flash, if that makes sense. I have very little experience with flash too. I mean, I've tried a couple speed lights on some modern SLRs. Um, there's a guy that I've never spoken to that I think I would love to get on the show. Uh, he's uh, He posts often in the Vintage Camera Collectors group. His name is Mike Amati. I don't know if anybody oh, here knows him, oh, yeah. but he posts mirror selfies of himself with usually a flash bulb unit of like everything from Olympus SLRs to like gray flex press cameras. So uh, he clearly is a big fan of be uh, a flash photography. And I've always been really impressed with his results and have wanted to try it more, but it's just, it's so like, I, I just, I have a hard time in my head trying to visualize what the photographer, the photograph is going to look like with a flash. Like I just, I can't visualize that. So I think that's what kind of keeps me away from it, but it certainly is interesting. It gets really complicated, especially when you start looking at multiple units as well. Right. Because then you start looking at, okay, you know, are we covering that shadow? Are we covering, filling in that area? What's um, not really being covered? Um, just one question on, on that, uh, John Michael. Is it 
what kind of flashes are you using? Are you using the big METS things or are you using studio type lighting with umbrellas and, and so on? Well, I, I use um, wireless uh, controlled speed lights. I, I have the Young Nuo system, which is pretty cheap and does great for what, what it, uh, you know, what it costs. And I've, I've got five of them, so I can set them up and, you know, do a whole bunch of different things with them. And, and is it portrait, portraits or micro? Um, mostly micro portraits. Work? Portraits. Wow. Yeah. And I cheat. I use digital to, as my Polaroid to, you know, see where the light's falling and how it's hitting and everything. And once once I get that all set up and looking the way I want to, then I'll just switch the trigger over onto a flash, uh, onto a film camera and take some shots with that. I, I hate flash. And I personally never, ever use it because of the work I did. I had to, I had to learn about it. So I got to be uh, pretty good at, uh, at figuring out not only uh, on-camera flash, but remote flash, high-speed sync, a lot of high-speed sync stuff where you're you're actually going to a 20,000th or, or higher duration, faster duration in order to stop uh, action on things and using sound triggers to uh, to get them to, to, to uh, fire the flash. Paul, I was just going to mention high-speed sync in terms of the Canon EOS system because I think some of their models are geared quite heavily for that with with certain speed lights, I have no knowledge or experience of using it. I don't know if it's something you've used at all. Well, the the TTL flash on the Canon upper end stuff, the uh, the the high uh, the higher end cameras, you can reach a, a, a you're you're varying the duration. You can't vary the actual shutter speed that much, but you can vary the duration of the flash. And some of those flashes will trigger out at uh, at uh, a forty thousandth of a second, I think. So if you don't have a lot of ambient light, you can uh, you can stop the action you're doing that way too. Can somebody explain, maybe for someone who's listening who doesn't quite understand, why are focal plane shutter cameras limited usually to a specific flash sync speed? Why can't you just mount a regular flash to a Canon AE-1 and fire the shutter at 1 1,000th? Well, because the shutter has to be fully open when the flash goes off. Uh, if you, in, a, in a 60th of a second is what most of them do, the vertical shutters We'll sync at 125, and the Nikons, like the FE2s and FM2s, would go to 250 because they went to a titanium-style shutter that is much lighter weight. And because it traveled vertically, normally traveling vertically would give you 125th of a flash sync, like a, a Nickermat would. But on the, the upper-end cameras with the lightweight shutter blades, they can actually speed that up, and they got it up to 250. Right. So I think 250 is really as fast as... Like you say, there's one Minolta that might have gone to 300, but one 300, yeah, yeah. But for the most part, 250 was the was the top. But what you can do after that is vary the duration of the flash, so you can still sync it at a 60 to a second, but have a high speed duration. So the flash fires faster than the shutter does, emulating a really really fast. It the duration of the flash is very fast. Okay, so it's it's a. Uh, and usually what you get there is you, you do that by power to ratio. The flash would allow you to cut back the power. Like even a simple flash like a, a Vivitar 285, which is you know about the simplest thing you're going to find, has power ratio built into the, uh, into the uh, aperture control dial, and you can cut it back. And so what you're doing is you're, you're, varying, you're shortening the duration. Gotcha. Okay. It gives you a faster recycling and a higher speed. It's also worth mentioning the reason why leaf shutters actually have the advantage is because they literally open the whole shutter at all speeds. So you don't get any curtain 
um, blocking light coming through at any particular point. So would that have been a huge plus of like the Hasselblad system? They use leaf shutters uh, compared yep. compared to like a Bronica. Absolutely. I mean, that was uh, that was the big deal. RB67s, Hasselblads, Kawas, any number of medium format cameras. And Mamiya made a, a leaf shutter lens and so did Pentax for the 6x7 that uh, would let you vary the uh, the flash sync speed actually on the lens rather than on the body. So you would, the focal plane shutter, you would lock in bulb or something, and then you would use the shutter on the lens to act like the leaf shutter then, right? Well, you don't really have a focal plane shutter on, on any of those cameras. You've got a rear shutter on the Okay. But that's just a baffle. And, I gotcha. Uh, it goes up and then the flash fires. So but on the on the six seven, you would I, I think you either you have a slow shutter speed with the six yes. seven. So it, it opens and then the lens deals with the flash part of it. And right. so you've, you've kind of got two shutters going. Yes, in, you do. I think, it's a 30, I think it's a thirtieth of a second. Yeah. Is the, the sync speed on the six by seven because that's a huge shutter. It's got a long way to go. Yes. But if you ever, if you're new to flash and you're trying to fire with mechan with manual speeds of flash with something faster than the camera's fl maximum flash sync speed, the flash will still fire, but like half your image will be black. And that's actually because like Paul explained uh, on a focal plane shutter, anything faster than the flash sync speed, the second curtain starts to close before the first curtain is completed opening. So you're in, in essence exposing only a slit of light to the film. And if that's when the, the bulb goes off, that's all you'll see. So that's good to know, um, especially for someone who maybe has ever done it before. Yeah. I'm currently borrowing a Pentax six, seven, and it came with the, uh, with that 90 on it. And it was the first time I'd ever had a camera where I needed to read the manual on the lens before I could use the camera. I see John Michael held up a Olympus pen SLR that has a rotary shutter. Do you know what's the flash think on those? Do you know any speed? Any oh, speed. Okay. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was looking into that because I just got that uh, not uh, not too long ago, and I was wondering about it. I was like, oh, that might be interesting. And so that's one of the things in the manuals. It says like because it has to turn anyways. I mean, it only goes up to I think a three hundredth is the top speed, but uh, you can you can sync at all speeds with that. Uh, definitely want to try that out at some point. I'm going to answer your original question of what thirty five millimeters you try flash with. I'm going to go with the Olympus Pen FSLR. <laughs> Aren't you losing then the um, half your frame anyway? Well, he didn't say, he didn't quantify frame size. <laughs> well, cool, that's awesome. Uh, we had a new person join while we were talking. Uh, Peter's iPad. Welcome, Peter's iPad. Hi. How you doing? I'm good, thank you. You want to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name's Peter. I'm from um, Essex, just outside London, sitting in my dark room. Uh, yeah, I've, I've just um, basically found you guys uh, in the last month, so I'm catching up. Okay. Um, I was, uh, I put something on the Facebook group about my um, A7 uh, Minolta. It's got the shutter fault, uh, aperture fault. Uh, Theo said he's uh, might have a solution for that. Oh, really? Because I have the same problem. What What's the solution? I think it's Theo that said he, he might might be able to help us with it. No, I think I said I, I can't help you much with that one, but you should join the oh, show right. and that way we can talk about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> my understanding of that issue is that there's a, a, a ring in there that's made out of plastic that yeah. actually opens and closes and it just cracks and uh you physically have to replace that piece and yeah. uh the only the only place to get other ones of those is from other alpha series cameras but one question that i have and i've never found anybody who's truly an expert maybe i should have asked alex this in the last show but i've heard that that piece can be interchanged 
between the Maxim 7 and other Alpha Minoltas. And I don't know if that's true or not. Can Are there other cameras that that can be sourced from that maybe they're, they're better built? Or I want to know if, if that part can be 3D printed. You know, maybe it's too fragile to be useful. But um, I have a, the same problem. If For anybody who doesn't know, the, with the Maxim 7, it's really common. Anything other than leaving the lens wide open, you'll get an error message. And the camera just locks up because it, it can't, physically stop down the lens and it's like so if you have an f17 and you even try to shoot at f2 that little bit the, the it just immediately locks up the camera but as long as you leave it in like aperture priority and lock the aperture wide open you can use the camera all day long but it just physically can't stop it down which is frustrating because those are such nice cameras yeah, if you turn it on and off as well if you turn it on right. and off i think and, but you don't want to be doing that all the time, do you? Right, exactly. So no, I, I'm in the same boat you are. I have the exact same problem. In fact, I actually at one point was going to review that camera on my site. And I just, I started writing it and I just couldn't, I couldn't get over the fact that I just, I don't want to write a review on a camera that's like broken, you know, like, I mean, well, let me rephrase. I've written many broken camera reviews, but that particular one, I felt like I should wait till I had a good working copy of. Because I've got all the lenses and that. I just got a Dynax 5. Yeah. Next to nothing. So I'll just use that, to be honest, if, if I decide to use an um, uh, autofocus camera. Well, if you listen to the last episode, we talked entirely about Minolta. And I yeah. I threw my hat in the ring for the Maxim 600 SI or 650 SI. Yeah. If you can find one of those, those are really nice. I, I might I might, um, I might, might buy one of those. I did I did listen to it, yeah. Awesome. Went for the 800 SI. There you go. That's the so same yeah, one. Yeah. What do you think of it? Is is that? Do you think it's pretty nice, Wayne? <laughs> Like the fact that you don't need to have the cards. Right. It's all built in. That's the, uh, what do they call those control cards, Anthony? Is that yeah. what those are called? So Anthony has the nine, which uses the cards, and you're looking for the custom one that allows you to leave the leader out. Is that it? I have a bunch of custom functions. I can just program it to whatever I like. Yeah. I can leave the leader in or out, or I don't I need picked, a card. I picked up the card that you pointed out on eBay. So it, did. it arrived this week. Oh, cool. So, yep, yep. So now I'll be able to uh, not have the film get sucked back up into the canister, into, cool. the, into the roll. The stupidest thing that I had to buy a card just for that one function. Yeah, but. yeah. It's a Maxim 7. Is this what you were talking about, Mike? That's it, yep. Yeah. Do you need one for parts? Because this is a parts, like, this came out of my parts department. It would only be useful to me if it's not broken. It's broken, but, uh, it's broken, but I don't remember what the problem is. I've had it for like five, th- five years or so. Do you have any alpha or maxim lenses, the autofocus at all? Yeah, I got plenty of them. Put it on there and see if you can shoot at anything okay. other than wide open. Okay. I was getting an error message of some kind, but I'm not really, I don't I'm, really remember what it was. I can almost guarantee you that's what it is because yeah. it's super common. Absolutely. <laughs> when that happens, I mean, it's it's one of those things that, you know, a manufacturer, when they, when they build a camera, they don't know how it's going to work 20 years no. after they build it. And why it's, should they? Well, the materials that they use, you know, work fine for as long yeah. as it's in warranty. Um, I would be willing to bet that if you had a time machine and you went back 100 years and talked to Oscar Barnack, uh, August Nagel, and said, did you know that 100 years from now, there's going to be people on this thing called the Internet that are still trying to use these old cameras? They'd probably think you were crazy. Like, why would anybody do that? You know, so while we've talked about they don't make things like they used to. And that's true. And things were built back then to last, which is true. I don't think anybody would have realistically said a hundred years from now, this retina or Leica or contacts or whatever 
uh, is still going to be working or even in demand. So wouldn't they ask what the internet is first? <laughs> yeah, I know. It'd be hard to explain. We'll just say, uh, we'll just say uh, uh, a church group or something. There's going to be a church group of people. They get together once a week and they're trying to use your old cameras. We're going to pray over your old cameras and see if they can bring them back to life. So I have a, qu- I have a question for Mr. Dowling. Yeah. So, so how's it going trying to become the uh, Paul Reibold of Europe with your uh, used camera sales? Because uh, I know that you've recently had a push on your, your website to uh, bring the joy of the point and shoot world and the cheap camera uh, to the, the, the uh, film shooting masses there in the UK. So how's that going? Well, I mean, I, I can never resist a good auction. So um, over here we have um, a site called The Sale Room, which once you set up an account, it gives you access to every auction house in the UK and a lot in Europe. So you can imagine how dangerous that is, especially when you can get trays of cameras for 40 quid. So um, uh, probably the short version of that is I now have an entire drawer that's full of cameras I've tested that they're working. Um, and I just need to put a roll through them and, and put them on the shop. But I've probably got 100 cameras waiting to go up on the shop. And everything from like the very humblest Helena and Hannah Max um compacts through to some slrs um i just put a practica 4f um up yesterday or the day before that's a nice camera i love those they're just really fun looking aren't they just such a distinctive the practica 4 the 4 and 5 are the only slrs i know that have both a film advanced knob and a lever Mm. so you could you could advance it with the knob on the top or has a bottom lever like a retina does. Yeah. I don't know that that makes it better, but it's just neat. It's yeah. And, and just that, that profile, it looks like a right. cartoon. Wayne's, Wayne's got one right there. Yeah. No, just that huge prism. Yeah. Really, really nice. So that, and um, what else did I put up the other day? Uh, an Olympus super zoom 700 XB in the box with all the papers. And I don't think it's been shot. And I got I think- that for, just in, insanely little money. Alan, have you ever shot one of those before? I think I've had an Olympus Super Zoom. I mean, it tends to be the IS series. I've tended to try and sneak and get for a few quid. They're, mm-hmm. um, I think, I'm not quite sure what they're called in the US. Um, are they the I series in the US? Or they, the IS the L- IS3s, IS100s. Yeah, so um, they're ones you actually come across on auction sites and actually in charity shops in the UK for three, four pounds, but yet are basically SLR, um, fixed lens SLRs, which work really well and have good quality lenses. I have shot a few of the the more basic super zooms um, and they go from awful to reasonable. I, I, I'm not sure the one that Stephen's on about, that's not one I've tried. It, but, um, it's one like that. It's got a sort of clamshell cover. cover. I've I actually, when I came over to Europe in the mid nineties, I had an IS 3000 or something. Um, I, it was before I really got into photography and rather than buying the Nikon F3 with a suite of lenses that um, this guy on the newspaper I worked at was going to sell me, uh, I bought an Olympus IS Zoom because I just thought, oh, well, I just want the one camera to take everything with, which is obviously fairly ironic given the state of my camera covers these days um but i was just blown away by how good the lenses are on those is um, uh shooting farnborough air show 
and just getting like these, these absolutely like pin sharp pictures. Steve, a lot of that had to do with the focus mm. because those cameras, uh, the problem with a lot of the autofocus cameras, especially the small ones, they, they were not continuously autofocus. They were autofocused for particular ranges. So they were steps, you, weren't they? Yes, they were stepped. So if you were shooting something that was seven feet away, the camera could be at a six foot distance. And it, it, it didn't really go exactly where it told you would. But the IS series, the, what they call the bridge cameras, they were continuously autofocused. So it would go, it would give you exactly where you had it centered is mm. where it was going to focus. Chinon Genesis, the uh, IS-1 uh, and any of the IS series. Which one are you holding up there, Alan? One of the more mundane IS one thousands, and I think that's one of the later models, which I think is is that the same as IS one in the US? I think it was. Okay. Yeah, yeah. John Michael has one too. One of my friends just bought one at a uh, garage sale for thirty dollars, brand new in the box, with all the paperwork, and the sticker on the end of the box was from my store. I <laughs> sold it in, in June of ninety six for three hundred ninety nine dollars. <laughs> it's too funny. Wow. Which one do you have, John Michael? Uh, I have Graham Jago's IS-1000. It was his Cheap Shots cameras for years, and he, he pawned it off on me then at some of the Cheap Shot challenge thing. So that was, cool. that was my prize. I haven't used it yet, though. It seems to work, but I haven't, I haven't dared to put a roll through it yet. They're ugly as sin, but they're really, really, really good cameras. I'm talking about ugly as sin compacts, because I did a sort of top 10 list, the... Um, you know, the last refuge of the blogger with, with Creative Block did a sort of list of 10, um, 10 quirkiest compact cameras earlier this year, which um, got quite a lot of traffic. And the Chin on Genesis was one of those that was just on the cusp of putting in because, man, that's one ugly camera. Was it as ugly as the Canon Futura, though? Uh, no, the Futura. Canon Futura looked like, a, like beer a pop can. can. Yeah, beer like a beer can. can. With a back end on it. Uh, is that, uh, what did they call it? The Apoka in... Um... Yes, I think they did. Yes, yeah. Uh, the Apoka's the, the, the same camera in the... Uh, yeah, yeah. I put, I put that in the um, in the list because that's, uh, yeah, also um, a camera only a mother could love, I think. Well, it was a terrible camera. The, they, the film jammed up in them because of the way the film transport worked. And... Uh, mm. It was not uncommon at all to take it, have to take it into the dark room and, and uh, cut the film off and try to get it out of the camera. I've only seen pictures of those. I've never seen one in person. Isn't the lens cap also the flash? Yes. Yeah. That's bizarre. <laughs> so, so Stephen, of your shop, though, I'm, I'm curious to find out like sales trends as to what's hot right now. Are they the Olympus trips? Or is it the uh, Soviet cameras? Is it the point and shoots? Uh, where's the market right now in the UK? Just off what I've sold, I, I haven't really put any Soviet cameras on yet, not because it would hurt me to sell them um, or not because they're all broken, um, but just I've been mostly um, concentrating on the compacts. But any time I've had a an Olympus Trip 35, if it's still there 48 hours after listing it, it's pretty rare. Those things just sell and sell and sell. Um they're fun. So I'm always looking out for um, Trip 35s. And it's a camera that I've never shot. I've, I've never so much as held a Trip 35. It is a really good camera for what it was expected to do. It was that sort of first, like, idiot-proof compact, which was like, you know, two speeds, 
cartoons and the viewfinder to help you get the range. Olympus 40 mil lens, which is absolutely beautiful. I'm going to have to make a package deal, Anthony. I got a spare F3. I have a spare trip. Uh, you have to <laughs> keep finding stuff for you. What our listeners couldn't see is that as soon as Stephen mentioned the Olympus trip, two thirds of the people in the chat held up their Olympus <laughs> trips to their cameras to taunt me with them. Yeah. <laughs> Almost the same thing happened with that Olympus super zoom. Like half the people, John Michael had it like instantly, like there's no way he could have known we were going to bring it up. And he just like reached out off frame and brought it in. Well, the good thing, impressive. the good thing is that all my cameras are right up above my screen. Okay. Here, so it's, it's all very easy to reach. There was a period of these episodes we recorded when I was remodeling the basement where my whole collection was in totes. Like I had access to nothing, but now I got almost everything at uh, at arm's reach. So that's nice too. But yeah, I, the trip is really, really nice. It's, I mean, it's called the trip literally because it was like the vacation camera. And um, this camera was in production for, I want to say like 15 years, maybe even longer than that. I mean, they continued 18. to make 18. Yeah, they made these even well into the autofocus era because they were so simple and so easy to use, you almost don't need to focus on. I mean, yeah. the zone focus on this really works well. You know, as long as you're not trying to do like bokeh shots or extreme close-ups for family snapshots, it, it's easy to use. Plus the lens on it is way better than most of the cheaper point and shoots would have. Which lens does it have? What's the focal length on it, Mike? 40 mil. Uh, yeah, 40 mil. It's a D's Weco, so it's a four elements, probably a Tessar. You know, there's nothing fundamentally amazing about it. It's just, it has that right balance, simplicity and quality and proven formula that just works really, really well. And it's got a Judas window, which is kind of neat, uh, which is that little peephole in the bottom right-hand corner of the main viewfinder. So you can actually see what you have um, the shutter speed set to. You can shoot them manually. So if the meter does die, they do work. Um, you don't control the shutter speeds though. So you're, I think it's what one fortieth and one two hundredth are the only two speeds it has. I think if you're if you're shooting manually, it just goes to forty because it, it wants to make sure you're not going to have camera shake. Right. I mean, they're they're so popular that a lot of them get reskinned. I've got a red one that's been reskinned red here, which which looks absolutely fantastic. Mm. Um, but uh, I believe the people that really love the trips and get really finicky about the shutter button whether it's the yeah. plastic one or the, or the, the metal black, one. The metal one, yeah. Mm. If, if you can find ones with the metal buttons on, people will buy those for like 180 quid. Oof. Yeah. There is a, I think it's on my review, I list approximately which serial number it starts to switch at. Those, obviously the plastic ones were later. There is a date code on these. I believe it's behind the pressure plate. So what you just open up the door and um, the pressure plate just slides off. You don't even have to unscrew it. And you can see a date code stamped, I believe, into the door to know exactly when yours was made. So Alan and Paul are both showing pens. Okay. So Alan, uh, what's the difference between my camera and your camera? Yours is the more expensive. Oh, you've got the... Uh, is that, is that single the... Single lug. Yeah. S? Single lug. That's a pen. D, is it? It's just a pen. The original pen. It's the first version. This is an ES. This is an EES, which is the predecessor. Basically, this is what the trip was built from. Mm. This is the second model of the ES. It's not the EES two. It's the 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 original one had two versions. One one which I think had a slower shutter speed setup, and then this this is a slightly later one, which is pretty much the trip, but uh, with a slightly different lens configuration. 
works exactly the same. A fun fact about the trip is Maitani designed that camera when he was very young. He was a junior engineer at Olympus. And they basically, it's kind of similar to Steve Sasson's story of how he came up with the first digital camera, where he was kind of a nobody in the company. They gave him a task with no real preconceived idea of what to do with it. And he created what he thought would be an ideal compact camera. Uh, he created the pen uh, for a, a budget that was like insanely low, like much lower than anything Olympus was working on at the time. And when he finally presented it to his bosses, they were impressed and put it into production but thought that it would only appeal to women and they didn't want to be known as a, you know, this is an old way of thinking, but they didn't want to be made as or known as a maker of cheap cameras. So they actually outsourced construction of the original pen to some other company. I don't remember offhand who it is, but Olympus did not make the original pens, but it so quickly became extraordinarily popular that, they couldn't keep up with the demand for them. And Olympus started, they kind of ate crow and said, oh, okay, we'll make them now. So there are subtle differences. And I don't remember, we have a new guest, Mike Litwin joined and he's holding up a book there. Yeah, welcome, Mike. Hi, welcome guys. A couple of books. But All right. You're saying, Mike. So the, the, if you're a collector, the earliest, I think it's, it's the, there's two versions of the single log like Paul has. And I don't know exactly how to tell the difference, but if you have a single lug, and what I mean by lug is the neck strap, most of them have them on each side. But if you have a single lug Olympus pen and it's the one made by the company that's not Olympus, they're worth a fortune to collectors. Mm. So they're very, very collectible because people want that original kind that was made by this other company. And there, there are differences. I just offhand don't remember what they are. These cameras were most popular by small police departments. Because they used them for mug shots. You know, it's a it's a vertical half frame. Right. And you get a lot of shots uh, to a roll of film. And uh, so police departments, you'll see a lot of these with property tags on them uh, in the U.S. And, uh, and usually they were just used in the jail. I mean, they were never taken out in the field. So generally they're in pretty good condition. Just bad karma. Yeah. You know, it's ironic. Stuff. I, I, you know, I'm a massive fanatic for half frame photography. And I've also never shot a pin F. I mean, I've got, I mean, a pen, I've got an F and I've got an FT and I've got, you know, seven other brands with half frames, but I've never shot an original pen. I haven't either. Did, didn't you do a lot of shooting when you came to Europe and uh, around the fall of the wall? With I was them? using an Agate 18. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which I've never shot with. Oh, they're, they punch way above their class, you know, the, the, and they're cheapo plastic and literally were made as a, as a children's camera yet they've got a, a like a wonderful glass i think it's an Indostar lens on it yeah it's a glass it's a four element Indostar glass lens and a basically 100 plastic camera yeah and I, I mean, when i came back i actually had a a, a complete gallery show of nothing but, cam but shots that i shot with that camera uh wow. and and nobody would have known that it was a toy camera uh it really yeah. does produce a, a quality uh a negative well uh, i mean the the smena um compacts the that lomo made in their tens and tens of millions. Um, the lens on that, especially the the last, well, not the last, but one of the last major models, the Smena symbol, um, a friend of mine, um, Piero Pozzella, who runs PPP cameras, he actually took that lens, it's called the T43, and rehoused it for Leica M cameras, and he was selling them for 300 quid a pop. If you get the, I just reviewed it, uh, the Shika three, two, the two and three, 
which was a little camera, but it had a, a screw mount. The mm-hmm. lens unscrews and it was meant for some Soviet enlarger, I believe. I don't know if they ever made it or not, but, and they never made another lens for the camera, but it uses a screw mount. And it's, I think it's, 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 it's the Indistar, what, 69, I think off the top of my head, but it's all those Soviet triplets, the T-43, mm-hmm. um, I've shot the Vaskhod. Uh, I've shot a variety of Sminas and they Soviet triplets are fantastic. That is one lens formula that, that they, yeah, they perfected it. It is, you're, you're going to get the great Lubitel, results. Um, especially in the, some of the later ones that the um, 166 universal was just such a wonderful lens sort of, you know, closed down a bit at, at 4.5. It could be a bit quirky around the corners, but just lovely for shooting slide yeah. on sunny days. But this is nice though, because unlike the Smina, where you have to hack the camera apart, it's literally just unscrewed. So yeah. if you're looking for, if you just want to play with it, and this is a really good camera too, on top of it, it's very well made. I mean, it's heavy. This is not a cheap plastic children's camera. It's got the front shutter release. It's got a great lens. It does have a meter, which I don't use. But if you want to play with digitally adapting a Soviet triplet, really, this is your best option because you literally just unscrew the lens, get an adapter for this, play with it. And then when you're done, you just put it back on the camera. So you have a helical and you have the f-stops on the lens itself once you get it off. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, so it stops really down. Need to, you need like a 17 to 32 millimeter tube. From what I've heard, they never made the uh, the enlarger. No, I don't think they did. They were going to. There's a lot of them now turn up on the internet with uh, just the body because the lens has been sold for um, for digital camera users, which is quite sad, really. Mike, what camera and lens was that, please? That you just held up? What camera and it's, lens was that, please? It's called the, the Shaika, C-H-A-I-K-A-3. There's also the two. The two and the three both have the removable lenses. The original one, it was fixed. Thank you. The twos, I don't now. I don't know about over there, but in the U.S., both are very, very hard to find. Uh, but I, I do believe the twos. Stephen, you may know better than I do. I think the twos were made in larger numbers, um, but either one of them, it's the same lens. Yeah, they're they're not not what I call a rare Soviet camera at all. I think I was looking it up in um, Princell's book the other day. I think you know you're talking about hundreds of thousands of each camera made. So. Um, and they were also quite well made so they tend to work still um i used to have a couple and again i sort of shake my head at how i used to you know test a camera and then sell it um yeah i had the whole sets with like the original manuals and everything and and uh when you collect soviet cameras uh, like a, a few of us i know do sometimes you get the passports from the factory where it it's literally signed out from the factory by the foreman um and then some of those sort of better um kept cameras you can still find that um sort of a factory passport which is just really cool real um time capsule i have that in a soviet on binoculars i got some uh, large uh, diameter uh, soviet binoculars for like astro um astro binoculars and yeah, they yeah. have that they have a passport like that on from from the factory from the inspector yeah which is pretty cool but i i did have a question about a soviet lens a russian lens the, what in the united states what is the helios 58 f 
2.8. I can't remember if it's a 2 or a 2.8. What are they selling for in the United States? Because I have my eye on one here where I live, but it's they're asking $110 or $120 Canadian, which I think is just nuts for a Russian lens. Vlad would, be, would know better than I would, but um, I was at his house a couple months ago, and he has a whole bunch of them that he's selling, the Helioses. And I want to say he sells them from anywhere between like seventy-five to one hundred dollars US. So well, maybe that's comparable. What what you said was one twenty? One ten, one twenty Canadian, which would be like seventy-five or more. That's pretty US close. Easy. That's yeah. no, that's about going for it. It's just yeah. videographers uh, um, uh, taking them because they have a stepless aperture, so yeah. they're very very popular with with videographers and and. Even cinema, uh, bits of the Batman, um, the recent Batman film was shot on a Helios 44. If you Google swirly bokeh, it, probably yeah. 90% of the search results are going to involve some type of Helios. So the word is out on those. Um, the in, in fact, the only reason they're not higher, like honest to God, I could see those things getting even higher in price. It's just that millions of them are made. Like, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little here, but like they'll find a whole warehouse somewhere in the Soviet <laughs> Union with crates of these things that were made yeah. and just never sold. So the supply of them is so high that that has kind of kept the prices in check, even though they are going up. But if if there was a Nikkor lens or a Rockor and a Minolta or an Olympus lens that people wanted with the same level of interest as the Helios, I they'd be four or five hundred bucks a pop. Mm. but just like yeah. i said because there's so damn many of them that that's keeping the supply is so high you just you can go on any ebay ukrainian seller and shipping will be like 13 dollars. you know like mm. i don't even know how the hell it makes it here but it does i, I can tell you mike that uh, probably about 20 years ago i bought a zenit e which, which still works with a uh, one of the late model helios's helios 44s for four pounds and a and a car boots at like a um a flea market so um it, it's been a recent thing you used to be able to get them for in the uk five or ten pounds ten pounds at most people gave them away you would find them in lots like i remember four or five years ago on ebay you would see somebody selling like eight of them in a lot mm. for like 50 bucks so because they're just like i said there were so damn many of them they just didn't they were they wanted to get rid of them what thread would they, would they have been M42s or? Most of them be M42. At one time I had a bunch of them that were 41s that were the, uh, that were made for the. Uh, 39. 39s. Yeah. yeah. So, I, so I actually I, wanted to talk about that. Uh, Paul, you gave me the crystal. Yes. Yeah. So these use the early Zenits use the M39. So it's the same physical size and pitch as the Leica thread mount lenses, but because it's a, it's an SLR, you have the mirror box. So the flange distance from where the lens mounts to the focal plane is further. So if you try to put a rangefinder lens on one of these SLRs, you're only ever gonna get really, really close focus. And I've actually been playing with that lately. And I found a couple combinations. First of all, if you just put like any rangefinder lens, like a Nikkor at 50 F2, you can shoot macro with an SLR, which is, I think, super cool because you have mm -hmm. the through the lens viewfinder. The only thing you usually can't do is if any part of the lens protrudes into the camera at infinity, 
it's probably going to hit the mirror. But if you're trying, if the whole intent is to shoot close-ups, then you're not going to do that. But I found, and for the life of me, I cannot find it, but I found a brawn that uses an M30 mount, brown mount, and I mounted it to the Zenit and it allowed me to focus like from 10 feet down to like two feet. So it's like that kind of happy medium. It won't hit infinity, but it's not as ridiculously macro as putting a rangefinder lens on it would be. So the, the crystal I would not recommend because they don't have the best reliability, but if you can find an early Zenit three, mm. I think, I believe even the Zenit E's, the early ones were made with the M39 mount. If you can find yeah. an M39 mount Zenit and you like close-up photography, because close-up is really hard to do on a, a rangefinder. But if you can see through the lens, these are actually really fun to adapt for extreme close-ups. I, I went one step farther. I had a bunch of those lenses. I bought 39 to 42 millimeter adapter rings. Yeah. I reversed the front element on one of the lenses and I reversed okay. the rear element on the other one and put them on a mirrorless camera. Mm. And it's unbelievable. I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's the goofiest, wackiest, uh, psychedelic uh, effect. I mean, it, it makes uh, it, it 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 takes bokeh to a whole new whole new level. Let's put it that way. I got nervous when I uh, flipped the front element on one of those because it actually it runs into the element behind it, so it kind of wobbles on yes. the on the second element. Yeah. I was yeah. like, I probably shouldn't crank that too tight. Yeah, no, you want to leave it leave a little play on it to to rotate it if you need it to. So I have, all right, so since we're talking about 1.4 lenses, here's one I'm super excited about. This is a lens that by itself is very expensive, but if somehow you can find it mounted to a body, you will get it for a lot cheaper, right? So, yes, you can see it? Yeah. The FTL. So the Olympus FTL, nice. I have the G Zuiko, right? 50 millimeter F1.4. And, and for the three of you who don't know what's special about this lens is... It's, I got to push the button. It's a screw mount. So it's the only M42 Zuiko lens they ever made. So it's a screw mount. You can mount it to Pentax. You can mount it to a Practica, whatever. And this lens, so I just increased the value of this lens by like double by taking it off the body. Um, but I'm, I got really excited to try this out and I've already shot a couple shots of it on digital and I was showing the guys with it. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's, I don't think you can get any sharper. I mean, I, I mounted it to my Sony a seven I could pixel peep and every pixel has something different on it. It's, it's that sharp. How's the camera on that? How's the camera, the FTL? It's, isn't it the first, uh, SLR Olympus SLR? It is yeah. the first Olympus SLR. They turned this out while they were working on the OM series. Cause they, they just needed to put something out. This camera is almost identical it's not a copy but it is almost the same thing as a minolta srt like it looks the same it has about the same controls mechanical shutter one through one thousand even the controls are in very similar locations so it's basically like a minolta srt which is a very good but basic 60s slr it has the screw mount but it has um uh screw mount Geez, Wico lens, 50 millimeter, one four. So I'm really, and I didn't necessarily mean to bring this up, but we were talking about one four lenses and I thought I'm, I'm pumped for this, but I haven't actually shot the camera yet. When I got it, the mirror linkage was uh, frozen. It was stuck up. So you couldn't advance the camera. 
So a really, really common fault with those. I've got two of them. Um, one I got last week or a couple of weeks ago, and it has that very common problem. Take the base plate off. Um, I got mm-hmm. some electric aerosol electrical contact cleaner. So not naphtha, but an actual aerosol can used for cleaning electrical contacts. And yeah. I just squirted the shit out of it. I mean, I wanted the lens, so I didn't necessarily yeah. care if I screwed up the body. So take the lens off, remove the base plate, and you can see the linkage for the mirrors right up in there. Just spray the shit out of it. Let it dry overnight. It'll almost certainly work fine. I just, I've got to go, guys. So I just want to say thanks, everyone. And uh, Good luck, Theo. Got- Thank you. It's a tight match, so I'm going to go watch it with my boys. So I'll I'll, I'll, I'll see you later. Bye. Who's winning? I know know the score. I've been Uh, watching the first half, but I'm watching the rest of it now with my sons. All right. Bye, Theo. Bye, Theo. Bye. Bye. Have you guys ever heard of the Izuiko lens? No. Olympus used to make a rangefinder called Olympus Ace. Right. I have the second model, which is called Olympus Ace E. I think in the U.S. it was called the Sears Towers as well. The Sears used, uh, used it. And unfortunately, uh, mine is broken. If you can see, an element has broken. Uh, um, uh, blade, lens blade has broken. In, and I can, never, I can never find a replacement because they're very rare to find. Is the blade actually broken or is it just out of its holder? Yeah, it's literally split. broken. Yeah, I brought it... I, Two, three years ago, I went to live in Hong Kong and I brought it with me. And the day I arrived at Hong Kong, it broke. And I haven't used it since. And I can't find any lens for it. Not even, I couldn't find it in Hong Kong. And it's such a really, really good camera. They're really hard to find. I, I don't know if people um, saw it, but there was a, a the guy who wrote um, the sort of amazing Bioffice uh, Olympus style. John Foster, is it? He died recently. Uh, and basically one of the auction houses in in the UK put his collection or have started to sell his collection. And he had an ace with about four different lenses because there were other lenses yeah. made for it. Um, and that's yeah. incredibly rare. I picked up one really luckily for about 40 pounds because nobody yeah, I else. I did the same got... 100 euros, same thing. Mm. No one, I didn't even know what it was when I bought it four years ago. And I was like, Oh, it looks nice. It works great. Yeah, it it's in in the pile to shoot because it it's working perfectly. A, a friend of mine in Australia had had basically tipped me off, um, Brett Rogers, and said, "If you ever find one of these, um, buy it because they're one of the best rangefinders ever made." Oh, it was it was amazing. I, I haven't been using it for like four years. No, not, uh, three years now. So, but it's there. You well, might you be able to own your lens. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. I can't find you can't you can probably find in Japan the camera plus lens, but you can't mm. find the lens. You might be able to um at least get that blade taken out so you could shoot it wide open at least because it's I mean the way it's it's broken down is blocking the whole lens so you yeah. can't really get anything. So you might be able if you take it apart you might be able to get that blade out at least and then you're stuck wide open but you could at least use it wide open funny uh, you know the story behind it it was i saw that the blade was kind of like breaking so i brought him to a shop in hong kong and he was just using it a little bit and he broke it and he's like okay here <laughs> have it <laughs> i didn't do anything it's already broken <laughs> uh, you know that you didn't buy it from that shop no 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 i bought it in italy so but 
I moved there and I wanted to use it and I saw it was broken and he just, he broke it even more. So unfortunately, I have one of the Sears versions of that camera. I can't find it. <laughs> Hero is just saying a little while ago, I have everything at, uh, here, but clearly I, I don't have it because I, I can't find it. So, uh, but yeah, neat, neat camera, interchangeable lens, Olympus rangefinder. It reminds me of the story he was telling reminds me of the, of the, the camera that you and I like the Minolta super a, which is a fantastic camera. Yeah. It was a bit of a, was, was attempted to be positioned as a professional uh, system camera. I believe Mike was at seven lenses that they had for it. Yeah. They, they made more the, the super a Minolta was a little bit higher end. I'd say than Olympus ACE, the ACE was kind of a entry level interchangeable lens camera, but it was between seven and five and seven lenses that they made for it. But good luck finding a lens not mounted on a camera. The, the right. lenses by themselves, like if you need a replacement lens, you're never going to find it unless you know somebody that has one. Like, you know, Mike found a 35 millimeter. 35. Uh, sold it to you. They yep. had oil on the blades, right? Yep. But uh, but it worked fine. Yeah. But but there were like five other lenses for that system that I wanted. There were I've got the fast 50. Mike's got the slower 50 on it. Um, I have never in four years of looking found a lens just for that camera system that wasn't attached to a camera. Uh, you just, just, they just don't, they just never come up. You've got to come to um, Bievra next year, uh, Anthony. Yeah. There's a camera fair south of Paris um, that I'd always wanted to visit. And in the last couple of years, I've been selling Cosmo Photo Film there. I would say the first year I was there, there would have been about 150 stalls and um, Lomig from, Film Washi said, well, and this is probably about 60% of what it usually is. And last year, last September, uh, last June, um, this year, uh, I, there were well over 200 stalls of just any kind of camera, um, film cameras and, you know, a tiny amount of digital, but any kind of film camera, it was there. Stuff I'd, the first year I went, I, I made a list on the train over because it was like, I can't just spend all the money I'm making selling my film. <laughs> um, so I put, you know, seven or eight things and I found three of them within about 10 minutes. Good and I, I stopped there because it's like, okay, well, yeah, I'm going to spend all my money otherwise. So, um, so how sales of uh, Agent Shadow and the Cosmo film going? Agent Shadow um, has been uh, steady. I, I made 12,000 rolls in... Uh, June, um, May and June, and that included the stuff for the Kickstarter. Thank you to anyone who who supported the Kickstarter. Um, and those twelve thousand rolls sold out um, by about September. So a new batch has been made, uh, and that was just produced a week ago, I think. So I'm starting to send that out to shops and. You know, get some in, in my online shop ahead of Christmas. Um, hey, do you personally email or uh, mail them to people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's it takes up a lot of time because when you're when you're selling that kind of stuff, drop shipping just doesn't make sense because you're being charged a certain amount. Sure. Yeah. Um, if you're selling a hundred rolls of film, then yeah, obviously it does. That's I have a um, logistics partner and in uh europe that does um the monofilms from there because 
to the to the retail trade because it, it just makes sense. But yeah, if people are buying from the, the Cosmo Photo Shop, it's me putting it in a box, taking it to the post office. There's a there's a strip of Agent Shadow hanging up behind me. Hey. Is that your I first one? Okay. I think that was my third one. Third one. Um I, I went to a tango, Argentine tango event and shot it at eight hundred. Um, on on the pen F, that was my first first roll in the pen F, and I thought I need some high speed film. Let's try the Agent Shadow at eight hundred, and it came out pretty good. Well, please do a post for the for the blog. I'd, I'd love everyone who's who's shooting it uh, to uh, put some put some pics up there. I know uh, Mr. Rue has recently shot a, a historic event on Agent Shadow. Well, he thought he shot a historic <laughs> event. On oh Agent no, Shadow. I was shooting with the MX and it's got this stupid little pegs that you have to put the film through on the spindle to wind it on. And it was, no! it was two o'clock in the morning and I was standing out in Mosquito Lagoon on the Manatee viewing platform. And I thought I had it on and I loaded it on. And um, then I thought, well, I'm just going to clip this and develop this because I really want to see the rocket launch on the, on the agent, on the uh, agent shadow. And, I look in there and yeah, it never advanced to the certain to the first frame. It just, it slipped right out of the spindle. It, it's easily done. I, years ago, I went uh, back in the day when um, the record industry had stupid money. Um, I was flown back from the UK to New Zealand to review a gig for a Sunday newspaper. <laughs> um, and the bands, uh, it was Neil Finn from Crowded House got a band together. Yeah, and they did five nights in Auckland. Um, and the band included Johnny Marr of the Smiths, Eddie Vedder, and two Radiohead. I borrowed my friend's Nikon um, F3, which I had never used before, shot a roll of film, and I, it hadn't taken up on the spool. They, they, did, they didn't send you back for the chills? <laughs> I've seen the chills many a time. <laughs> But uh, well, at least I had I had four other cameras with me, so hopefully I've got three other that I I'm I'm fairly certain that I got it loaded correctly in the in the Contax ST, and I had the the um, the Zeiss 300 millimeter lens, and it actually I had the slowest film in that, and it turns out that that damn rocket was so bright that I'm not even sure that if I'd gotten anything, so I was I, I had loaded up the Agent Shadow at 1600. And Ooh. I think that it would just it would have just completely bloomed. I don't think that I would have been able to to discern anything, yeah. uh, because I was not prepared. Because I was so close, I was close enough to the rocket launch that I actually could feel the heat uh, wow. as it went up. Um, I was about as I mean, I was as close as was humanly possible, unless you were like a NASA staff person. So how far, like physically, was it? That you physically, were? Uh, seven miles. Seven miles, and you could still feel the heat. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you could certainly, you felt the rumble in your chest before you could hear it. It was, and also because of where, where we were, they weren't going to let any of the viewing happen where the arc of the rocket went over in case it exploded. There was so much propellant that they were afraid of like, you know, incinerating all the people that would normally have been at Playa Linda beach. Uh, so I was, I was literally like two miles from that spot. And, uh, and it was funny because it was this like kind of a secret viewing area. And I was there with all these SpaceX engineers who, who wanted to see it go. Did they uh, give you any Twitter gods? Previously, when because this is my third attempt to see it go, and previously they were just jeering every time it didn't go. They were like, "Oh, SpaceX would never have had these problems. SpaceX is perfect." SpaceX, and of course now this one went off, and they were just like, "Holy crap!" 
because <laughs> it's just it I, i've seen the falcon heavy or heavy falcon falcon heavy lift uh for the last crew launch and this is just a magnitude bigger than that i mean i'd mm. seen when i was six or seven my parents took me to see the last saturn launch and this was comparable to that if not bigger you know i'd never i mean i've, I've seen many of the space shuttles launch and this there's there's just nothing that was like seeing this thing go i mean it was i've got a picture that i'd set up because i had my uh my nikon i mean not my pentax uh k1 digital camera set up with an irx 15 and i was doing long exposures with that and i've got a picture of the lagoon and you can see the gantry and the top of the gantry is just over the trees in front of me uh you can almost see the tip of the rocket over the trees and uh, uh the whole thing was just like it was just truly awe-inspiring so I'm I'm curious about the logistics of shooting four cameras at the same time. I had the I had the Pentax on the tripod with the Irix, so it's got a 15 millimeter lens, and I knew where the flight path was going to be. And so literally every time I hear the camera, I, I hear the shutter activate. I would just hit it again without even seeing what it was. I just would hit it and hit it and hit it and hit it. And uh, and then I had the um, I had the, the the MX and the contacts around my neck. Uh, and I would pick up the contacts, which has got a, a motor drive in it. And I would shoot like five shots with that and then pick up the MX, take two shots. Then I had a, a Mamiya 645 that was like on a bench right next to me. And so I'd pick it up and take three shots because of the angle. It was literally going directly in front of me. So it arced like almost over me. Uh, so uh, I had about a minute and a half before it was too far away to be anything meaningful. So I was just like, a, I must've looked like something out of like a Bugs Bunny cartoon because I was just, I was just imagining a big rail with like all four cameras mounted to it with like, you know, some kind of contraption pushing all the buttons. After I shot this, I was talking to a photographer who had that set up for previous launches because they're like, dude, you just need to get one of these rails. But the truth is, is I was shooting longer lenses because uh, I really wanted that sort of articulation of the, uh, uh, the exhaust where you can see where you know it's burning out of the back of the rocket engine i really wanted to get that articulation so i was shooting i, I had a, a 100 millimeter smc uh which is a heliar design on the pentax and then i've got the 300 on the on the on the contacts so i still need to develop those i'm really i'm, I'm thinking that i've got some good shots i don't think i got anything on on the on the mamiya uh because i had the mamiya set on aperture priority and uh it just just from what it sounded like i i, I don't think that it, I got good shots. I think there's gonna be camera shake on those metered for the background or something. Yeah, yeah definitely. Definitely metered for the dark. Cause I was getting like what sounded like maybe one 25th to half second exposures on the Mamiya. So I only took like four shots on that. Um, but the contacts is good. Good chance. I've got some good shots back in open times. Uh, Nikon was, of course was the professional camera shooting all those events and, they were they would set them up on the island. They'd let them set up in the island, but they couldn't stay on the island, so they had yeah. to fire them by remote control. So they would set cameras up on uh, tripods uh, with sound triggers. Yep, they still use and, those and two hundred fifty exposure backs. Yep, so they would uh, set them up, and then a helicopter would fly over. So <laughs> that set off the sound trigger. So there there went two hundred fifty exposures. So they said, okay, we're going to go to a light trigger. So then it started to rain. So they, they were going to get their lenses were going to get wet. So they drilled a hole in the lens cap, tied the end of a fishing line to the lens cap, the other end of it to the film rewind crank. So the thing goes off, the, the light from the, from the rocket 
triggers the, the light trigger, it fires the first frame, it rotates the, the uh, fishing line, rips the lens cap off the lens, and shoots 250 exposures, <laughs> just like it's supposed to do. That's cool. It won't help you now, but um, if you, Anthony, go to my site, Kepler's Vault 97. I share an article from June 1961. Modern Photography actually wrote an article called Rocket Photography. And it's all about what photographers had to go through. Probably a story similar to like what Paul said of, of ways that they had to go through to actually capture these images. Um, it mentions um, a rocket called the Juno 3, which exploded right after launch that they were able to capture pictures of. So if you like reading what had to be done even back then, it's it's a really cool glimpse into the past. Well, the other thing is that it was the, the temperature was cool enough that uh, at 150 in the morning when it went off, it was right at the dew point. And, uh, you know, they, they started the countdown again because they had a hold and they, they started it at, you know, T minus 10. And at T minus four, I look over and my K1 is completely soaking wet. There's water beaded up across the top of the camera. It's water sealed. So I didn't think about it. And I thought I better check that IRIX 15 lens. And I look over and it's completely frosted over with dew. Uh, you know, I, I feel sorry for those people that set up those remote cameras because I don't think they anticipated these weather conditions. So I'm frantically with the Zeiss wipe trying to get the water off of my lens and then a piece of oh, flannel geez. trying to dry it off. And I actually, I dried it off like with three seconds to go before the launch. So, so you're fighting, you were fighting darkness, humidity, moisture, and weren't there manatees that were trying to assault you too? There were manatee. I was at a, a manatee observation platform and they're just like, <laughs> like, <laughs> right in front of us but we were in a place called mosquito lagoon and i think i paid with a pint of blood uh you know because yeah. it's just like you could just literally just wipe your arms and just look down and there just be blood on your fingers from all of the mosquitoes <laughs> um so there was a little bit of a discomfort but man i tell you when that thing went off it was like somebody turned on the lights in the middle of a football pitch uh it was as bright as day you could have you could have read a book I mean, it was casting shadows uh it was it was something to see you need, well, to, you need to get the BBC to send you over for one of these launches. I'm I, I'm afraid I'm not high up uh, high enough up the totem pole to to be sent over to uh, to a NASA launch. But, um, well, it's the name uh, like Cosmo thought... Photo. You should try Russia. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a BBC journalist, so certainly not uh, not allowed in Russia anytime <laughs> soon. Um, but I was actually in. Um, so as part of my job at the BBC, I, I look after quite a bit of our space coverage. And um, I got a press trip to Dubai because they've got quite a ambitious space program. And they put a, a Mars orbiter into orbit around Earth uh, on the first attempt, which is, I think, the only, only the second nations put a spacecraft around Mars on the first attempt. So I've been in the control room for that. So I've, I have actually been to a space agency control room. And on that trip, uh, the last night i met up with um the guys who who do uh cosmo photos distribution and in the uae and super nice guys who run a a sort of film shooters collective called analog the room and they were like oh so so what are you what are you over here to to do and i was sort of explaining the the various stories stories i was doing for the bbc and and um, they went, one of the guys went, oh, so, so you went to the, the space agency. 
I was like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, like the one near the airport. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, did you meet the guy who, who makes the spacecraft? And I was like, I don't think so. Why? And they, they sort of laughed. And the guy, Frank, said, the guy who designs the spaceships is the biggest Cosmophoto fan. He even has your T-shirts. Oh, man. <laughs> we've, we've since been in touch over email. So, uh, you know, you said the reception at Agent Shadow is really good. The, the whole state of, of, you know, manufacturing film and distributing it, uh, you said you do a lot of this yourself and everything, but um, are there any trends that you're seeing, like where the direction of the industry is going, or can we hope to see more uh, emulsions like yours, maybe some color, anything like that on the horizon? I mean, obviously I'm a, a, a rebrander uh, at the moment because the if if you want to make a film, the last time I checked for a black and white film, it was about £100,000 to do the R&D work. I would imagine you could probably double that now. Um, it's a lot of A and B and C and D testing of chemical formulas. They might check 50 different variations before they reach the one you want. Um, color is probably 10 times that amount to get a color film out. A new color, uh, color film recipe, you could spend two million pounds and maybe you get one, maybe. So that idea of completely new emulsions, I think is, I mean, you know, if if the upward growth keeps continuing, um, you know, people might do it, Kodak might decide to bring out new films, but I think more likely is just people reformulating existing emulsions um, and getting rid of some of the toxic crap that was in them, which is exactly what, exactly what, Kodak did with the ectochrome. They basically took ectochrome 100G, um, which was the fine grain version, and just literally took that recipe apart and took stuff that was too toxic for current environmental um, regulations, took that out, and then did that A, B, C, D, E testing. And it cost millions of dollars. So for a question for the group, not necessarily Stephen, but for those of you who do shoot color, are you finding yourself like shying away from it? Are you shooting more black and white or are you just paying through the nose of what the, the current asking prices are for color? I mean, co color is ridiculously hard to find in the UK and in Europe, um, especially for, for Kodak film. You know, I would hope it's slightly easier in the States and Canada, but from what I hear, it's it's almost equally difficult. Color is the big the big problem because Kodak just it, it can make all the film we need and more, but it just can't convert it because it doesn't have um, near enough the converting machines to meet demand. That's the bottleneck. I can't speak for the entire United States, but like where I'm located and I'm near Chicago, you can find color. You just pay through the nose for it. So it's not necessarily impossible to find, but when when you get conditioned in your head to spend, you know, six to eight dollars a roll and you're looking at, you know, 13 to 14 a roll, um, I just think that that turns people off. You know, like I'll still buy a three pack of Fuji 200 if I could find it and just have it on hand. But when it comes time, because I do the reviews, when I used to, for cameras that did that performed well, 
I ideally like to do one roll of black and white and one of color. And I'm starting to really shy away from that simply because I don't have a lot of color. But I, so I was just curious, like with the group here, if you guys have started to actively switch closer to black and white, or are you just still paying for it? Well, here in Italy, I used to buy my film in, in the shop in France because it was it's more expensive here in Italy than in France, but uh, probably because they have a different distributor. But uh, lately, there's I found another shop and they're kind of cheaper, but it has been expensive. You know, Color Plus was three euros, three euros 50 till two years ago. And now it's pretty much double it. And that's absurd. And it's always all, pretty much it's mostly the consumer based film that's out of stock. Sometimes you can find Portra. Ektar is always available, even though people don't like it. I love Ektar. I think it's amazing, but sure. Like once you would buy, let's say 50 euros of film and you get so much and now you could probably get more black and white film than color film because color has been so expensive and Kodak film in general, even black and white is it's too expensive. Probably it's cheaper in the U S but here in, in Europe, you know, you pay for triax, you pay 13 euros and that's too much Four years, three years ago it was seven euros. But Color Plus and Kodak Gold 200 in London are going for 14 pounds a roll. That's absurd. Yeah. That, that's just sorry. That's just that's just fucked Yeah, it, it's it's people are pushing. I mean, it, it you know there is the demand there. So I suppose you're you're seeing people you know just test how much people will pay. I I had um one of the labs I use a lot whenever I test a a camera. I I just use a cheap and cheerful dev and scan with a, a you know good little um local lab but they also sell film they sell my film really nice guys and the the guy who runs it sid was just saying i i, I would have people come in and buy all my color plus and kodak gold 200 and an hour later i'd see it on sale in amazon because i knew who the people were and they were just buying my film and putting 50 percent on and selling it so I had to ration my film to people own you know, no more than three roles. It's yeah, I've, doing the photo walks that I do, I, you know, several people have said that they're you know when when I'm out of color, that's probably it. I'll I'll shoot color on digital and just save black and white for shooting on film cameras. I, I can imagine that all of us pretty much stocked up during the years mm -hmm. color film. Like I have, I still have a lot of color film, probably film that was fresh when I bought it. Now it's a little bit expired. It's in my freezer, but so I still have some stock. I buy color from time to time, but it's, it's not a priority anymore. Yeah. It's not like, you know, black and white is, is nicer. And right. plus, you know, now it's winter, so it's going to be dark and, and color film during, you know, right. The, the, this time of winter, it's, it's pretty much useless. So black and white is the biggest and best option. I live, I live, one hour away from Ferrarnia film. Mm. Ferrarnia film is in the town called uh, Cairo Montenotti, which is an hour, an hour and a half away from, from me because I live in Turin. And I hope they could be the solution, you know, the, the light at the end of the tunnel. I hope they can help out with color film. You know, they've been struggling. Uh, Italy has been struggling. And I can imagine that the Italian government hasn't been so kind to them during lockdown in the past years, but I hope that Ferrania can come out. It's not only for, you know, pride and because I'm Italian, so they're Italian, so 
but let's hope they can come out with some film. I'm looking at, so I'm just used cause I'm in the U S so I'm looking at adorama.com, which is a very big photography related online reseller in, in the United States and a single roll of Fuji color superior 400 color is 1499 us. Um, Ektar 100, a single roll is 1599. Uh, you know, so I mean, if I wanted it, I could get it 15 bucks. Plus I got to pay shipping, Mm. you know, and usually sales tax, you know, you're coming up to, I mean, maybe if I were to buy some, I'd probably add a few to my cart, but you know, you're looking at 17, $18 us for a single roll of film. And if I really, really needed to shoot color for a special occasion, I would do it. But when I'm just picking up a, a pack set, you know, uh, some random camera just for the purposes of testing. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I'm I'm kind of down to black and white on a lot of them, which which I don't necessarily mind because, like you mentioned, it's winter. Same here. You know, in the area of the country I'm in, it's already super gray out. You know, I mean, even if I loaded up a camera with color, I'm going to get some pretty uninspiring shots. Whereas I just feel like I can I can get better use out of black and white this time of year anyway. But it, you know, it's it's disconcerting. I mean, it's disappointing. I, I wish that this problem didn't exist, but I can't say that it wasn't predictable. I mean, at some point, I think film in general, just at some point, it's just not going to be made. Like, do you honestly think in 100 years from now, there's still going to be color or black and white film? Like, at what point does our hobby officially die? You know, I hope not. Uh, But, you know, it's it's just a sign of the times. You know, the, the digital revolution caused a downturn in film usage yeah we've seen this resurgence but the environmental concerns the economic concerns covid there's just so many things working against our hobby being affordable which is sad but so i think the the environmental concerns are oddly one one of the least things to worry about because film is no longer being made in the quantities it was that it's really not not that much of a problem yeah you know some of the chemicals are pretty shitty and it would be great if you could you know make them from plants but um you know Kodak used to own its own silver mines and it also used to own its own farms to to you know full of cattle to produce the gelatin it it was that big of a company that it owned mines and giant cattle farms and now it's like it's one percent of what it used to be I don't know if this joke will work with a bunch of non-Americans, but the movie Idiocracy had a line in it about Brondo, which was this thirst mutilator. And they would always say, it's what plants crave. So you said film for plants. And I thought maybe like Cosmo Photo could be what plants crave. So uh, it, that would be funnier if you're familiar with the movie, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll edit that out. Just to just to get back on the on the film topic for a second, um, I haven't I haven't really followed it much, but I know there's there's some movement from Orvo Film here in Germany. I'm not sure exactly what they're coming out with or what they're doing, but um, I keep I keep getting like little notifications like sale or almost done or something, but I haven't followed it, so I don't know if anybody else knows what's going on with that. Oh, well, even Adox, even Adox in Germany, the same thing, Color Mission yeah. 200. So. But that's that's an old stock that they just are reconfiguring. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's an old old film they're just canning to, to old sell. new, old new, yeah, old new. It's a nice film. Though. It's uh, it's Agravista yeah, two hundred, I think. So it's a a reworked version of the original Vista. 
Um, so the, the diamond logo one, um, which is a lovely, lovely film. Uh, all right. So we're coming up on an hour and 40 minutes. Um, we've had some really fascinating discussions, uh, but I wanted to wind down and give everybody one last chance. Peter, we haven't heard much from you. If anybody has any questions or does anybody have any gas they'd like to share uh, before we go, anything cool that you've picked up recently or anything like that? I picked up, um, uh, if anyone shoots Mamiya TLRs, um, the C330, someone in the UK is making, um, printing them. You can put Kia viewfinders. Okay, uh, cool. A C330, yeah? and these, these, these prison finders are actually really, really nice. And it makes the C330 so easy to use. I mean, I've got the uh, the chimney for the 330, but this is much nicer. So on eBay, he's doing, I think, about 20 quid. It's a clever idea. I'll go and get my my favorite recent camera. Hang on a sec. What do you got there, Alan? Uh, in my inevitable quest to find the worst camera in the world, this is my latest edition. This is a Syntex. I believe you might be able to also get it on the Olympia branding. This looks like a video camera. It's always got that reassuring... Uh, lens, lens cap. cap with camera yeah. written on it yeah. just to make you sure know you know it's quality when they get lens it looks like a video camera and look it even has a <laughs> pop out side bit which is a waist level finder uh, <laughs> absolute that's tosh. a weird camera it's not the worst one i've shot i have to say the olympia interchangeable lens is still worse image quality but that is truly one of the most bizarre cameras i have ever purchased that is weird see one of is that plastic Oh, pretty much 90. Yeah, I think pretty much it's it's basically a color optical lens, but it doesn't have any way of adjusting the aperture. Um, it's a slightly different, uh, I think it's a 35 millimeter rather than the usual 50. It's totally confusing. It's got a square viewfinder, but it actually, and the waist level finder is in landscape, but it shoots obviously because the film goes up through the camera, it shoots oh, in man. portrait mode. So it's an absolute nightmare to use in terms of framing, although it's actually not it's quite central in framing if you use the, the main viewfinder, but it's just uh, <laughs> how they created it, I don't know. And Olympia has one, there's an Olympia model that's worse, which looks actually much more like a video camera, but features a tape cassette built in. I was going to mention oh, wow. that I saw one of those. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's on my list, I just have to find one that's not an, <sighs> an absolute... Uh, oh, oh, we've, oh. Got, we've got a superb oh, oh, showdown. Superb alert, superb alert. <laughs> Which lens is it? Mocking me again. It's the Heliar one. I got it because of you guys were talking about it uh, many episodes ago, and I managed to pick it up here in Germany. And it was it was kind of a mess, but I got it from the the original owner. His his dad had passed away. Wow. It's it's got the box and the leather case and everything for it. That's and um, the shutter speeds are a bit slow, but I went through and cleaned everything up, cleaned the mirror, cleaned you know cleaned and oiled it and everything. So it works really very nice. Yeah, the Heliar Superbs, that's four figures anymore, at least here. So hopefully you didn't pay that much for it, but that's a beautiful camera. I really like the little mirror where you can see the uh, the shutter speeds and stuff. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Steven, what you, what'd you get recently? Uh, it's the... Is that the Texas Waker or something like that? It's a no. Canon Sure Shot Zoom XL. And it's the XL, shoot. yeah. It, it's the world's largest point and shoot. <laughs> Federico, well, anything new? I just picked up a Leica MP. It just arrived last week. New from the Leica store in turn. Oh, and um, cool. what is life like with one kidney? Exactly, exactly. Nope, got no more kidneys. 
<laughs> oh, he saw both of them. Okay. I'll happily uh, trade yeah. you this. You know, no problem. No question asked. You know, I'll even sure. cover your postage. <laughs> well, you got to see, you got to check with Brexit. You know, us Europeans, we're not keen with, with you know, England. <laughs> I'm Scottish. It's fine. Don't worry about that. We well, yeah, leave. you guys, you guys prefer, you guys didn't want to leave. So no, nobody wanted to leave on this call, I don't think. Well, I, I went sub-miniature for gas this week. Um, I had been lusting after a Minox LX, which was the sort of the highest featured last fully automatic Minox, Minox. And uh, Paul ended up with a a box, a treasure, a history of Minoxes. And lo and behold, there was a working LX in the, in the, in the, in the mix. And that is now uh, what I've been shooting this week. And you want to talk about a camera that gets... Uh, comments you know people always talk about oh they always comment when i'm shooting with my tlr pull out a minox and uh you know suddenly you're james bond and uh everybody wants to know what the hell is that that you're shooting oh wow yeah <laughs> it's not new to me i already talked about my olympus ftl but since we're doing a euro show um i'm gonna have a review of this bad boy pretty soon here this is an ensign selfix 820 special yeah. Uh, it's a six by nine range finder folding camera. Uh, very, very nice shape. It's got a, a sem somewhat fast F3.8, 105 millimeter Ross London lens. It's got a leaf shutter from one to 250. It's an uncoupled range finder. So I look through the viewfinder and I see a traditional combined incident range finder image, but you have to turn this dial on the top to get the distance and then whatever it says, then you manually transfer that to the lens. So it's not coupled, but um, I don't know how common Ensign cameras are over there, but um, I'm pretty excited. I've shot this one and uh, my, my test images, they do show some pretty significant vignetting near the corners, but for, for the most part, every other part of the image is very, very sharp. I, I picked up um, one of my best auction um, purchases was a completely working Enzyme Commando I got for 30 quid. I really want to get one of those. Those things are pretty. It's just such they're, a beautiful camera. Yeah, they're they're impossible to find here. Yeah. I mean, they're probably uncommon for you too, but I've never seen one for sale in the US. I've only seen about four or five in the flesh. And this one is, I mean, it's a bit beat up and dusty, but everything's working. It's light tight. I haven't put a roll through it, but... Um, I think it's going to be my my folding camera um, of choice next year if I cool. can wrench myself away from the escrow, which is probably my favorite medium format camera. Wayne, got anything new since last week or two weeks ago? Since Federico mentioned the Texas like it, oh, okay. Cool. <laughs> Paul, Paul's got a big lens. My third Aero Ektar. Ooh. Oh, that's a big piece of glass. 178 millimeter f 2.5. Uh, that uh, I don't understand. I mean, they have a mystique. They they do produce uh, unbelievable backgrounds, but for some reason they're just they're they're hitting way out of what the ballpark is on. I mean, those cameras, those lenses are selling for between nine hundred and thirteen hundred dollars. Are you going to adapt that to your Sony? No, but I did get it. Does have a Joe Low lens board on it, so it'll mount directly to any speed graphic. It, it has no, it has no shutter, so it's you've got to use it on a speed graphic. But the weird thing about them is they they were rare earth lenses. They were either thorium or LAK nine glass, and they had a tendency toward element separation. This one has it. 
it doesn't have any effect on the image, but it does on the values. What what else did you have there, Wayne? Um, currently shooting this strange uh, Velta Belmira. The Belmira, yep. Those are pretty. Yeah. It's, it's got the most extreme right viewfinder I've ever seen. Like they yeah. couldn't they couldn't physically move that viewfinder to the side more. If you're a right eye shooter, that's like the paradise camera for you. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher's camera. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher had one of those? No, I just put extreme right. right you could get. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> that's whew, went over my head. Oh well. <laughs> Tough crowd. Summon falls is really awkward as well. You have to it requires a lot right. of force because you don't have believer advantage. So wait. So the he's describing the film advance is it's like like on a track on on the back of the camera yeah. from from left to right instead of a lever. That's kind of peculiar. Interesting. I've never seen one of those before. John Michael's showing it's an early ten X. Yeah, the text one. It's it's got to come in a similar thing. You have to you have to. There's a little button here on the side that crunches down around the lens, and that's, yeah. that's the film advance, and that's the the shutter release. And then I that saw Federico had a, a Super Iconta 530A. 531. It's 531. my great grandfather's. Oh, yeah. Very it's, pretty. It's my, and it's, uh, I think it's a pre war because it's a Tessar 35 millimeter Zeiss Opton. It still Those works. It still works. Excellent. It doesn't have no holes or anything. Great, my great grandfather's. All right. Post war. I don't know. Dice Opton is is the later dice. Um. Okay. It looks like everybody else had a chance to share their uh, stuff. Wanted to say thanks to all you guys for coming. Uh, it's great to see some fresh faces, some faces I haven't seen in a while. Uh, like we keep saying, we like to do these European time show episodes every once in a while just to try and get people who don't otherwise get a chance to join. We're going to record our next show in two weeks on Monday, December 5th. It'll be at our regular time. We don't have anything specifically planned or scheduled or anything like that. It'll just be the usual uh, slate of things that we're going to discuss. But as always, the topics and discussions on the Camerosity podcast are determined by you. Those of you who join us help steer our discussions into interesting directions that we maybe didn't predict uh, before we started talking. So I wanted to say thanks to everybody for coming it's great to have you guys on the show and we'll see you next time so have a good night thanks for having me bye everybody thanks everybody all right bye. Bye. thank you bad news France won. Oh no! Oh, no. <laughs> the, Theo's gonna crushed. be unhappy. Oh, oh poor no. Theo! I have to buy a digital camera. Oh, bloody French! Freaking them and the goals and the expensive team. I don't know. Maybe it will take it out on Tunisia. I know we'll take it on Tunisia and then we'll get back to them in the next round. Wayne, uh, congratulations! On the most appropriate T-shirt for this evening. Yeah. What does it say? It's got a Kodak yeah. shirt. Oh, on it's it. a Kodak shirt. Okay. I only noticed when he got yes, up earlier. A Kodak moment. A Kodak <laughs> moment. <laughs> nice. All right. You guys have good a good night, night. everybody. All right.